Welcome to Emergence Magazine's podcast. I'm Emmanuel Vaughn Lee, executive editor of Emergence Magazine, located on the unceded ancestral lands of the Coast Miwok people of present-day Marin County. Each week, we feature a new interview, narrated essay, or story, exploring the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Earlier this spring, I spoke with Dr. Suzanne Samar, the renowned scientist whose groundbreaking research, widely known as the Wood Wide Web, demonstrated how trees communicate and exchange resources through networks of mycorrhizal fungi within the soil. In this conversation, Suzanne discusses the urgent implications of a revolving understanding of the interdependent nature of forests and for healing the rift between ourselves and the living world. We also spoke about the origins of her connection to trees, her latest work on mother trees and how they recognize and support their kin, and her new book, Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest, that's just been released. You've described your work as an exploration of how we can regain our respect for the wisdom and intelligence of the forest, and through that help to heal our relationship with nature. And over the course of your career, you've made some remarkable scientific discoveries about the ways that trees communicate and the intelligence that lies at the heart of the forest ecosystem. And I was struck how in your new book, you describe how even as a child and as a forester earlier in your career, you had this deep respect for trees and the forest and intuited much of what you ended up proving scientifically. Where did this deep respect for trees and the forest come from? You know, I I grew up in the trees. I spent my childhood among the trees always. And my parents are both from what's called the Kootenai region of British Columbia, which is the inland rainforest. These are these are beautiful forests. They're they're much like, you know, the west coast forests, but they're inland. So there's towering cedars and hemlocks and firs and white pines. And you know, I grew up playing in those beautiful old growth forests and not even really intellectually understanding how connected I had become because I it just was our way of life. And you know, I understood the forest as this deeply connected, reverent place. Um, it was like our church, right? These these huge cathedrals of trees, and um, and so you know, it 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 just absorbed into my bones and blood and DNA, and uh, and so then um, I I didn't realize, I didn't articulate at the time that I had this reverence for trees, but when I um, grew up and became a teenager and started thinking about my career options. It didn't take that long to learn that there was this thing called forestry. I didn't know anything that what forestry was other than that I grew up around it because my grandfather was a horse logger, as were my uncles and my dad. And, um, and so when I went to university and to become a forester, I realized that that the way the the academia was viewing forests and also the forest industry, because I ultimately started to work for them, was very different than what I had learned. So instead of, you know, this entwined place, you know, where all the trees are 
interdependent. They were white, like one to me, right? It, it, um, they were a cathedral that was one and with, you know, with all of its disciples and pews. And, you know, to me, it was just this integrated place. And when I went to university, the professors had picked apart the forest. There were the trees, there was the soil, there were the plants. And so it was like a reductionist way of seeing this place that I had already grew up knowing was whole. Uh, and then when I got a job in the forest industry as a civil culturalist, as a young woman, and that's how the forest industry treated the forest as well, right? To take the trees and sell them and clear cut them and sell them on the market and then plant trees again. And what those plantations looked like were not at all uh, what what came, where they came from, like the forest that was clear cut was not at all what was put back. Um, and I was part of that, I became part of that machine, right, that clear cutting planting machine. And I loved it. But I knew there was something deeply wrong with it, that we were creating forests that were not connected and entwined, that that we were creating forests where we put these parts back, but it didn't actually um, meld together as a whole, like I, I knew it should. And eventually, I went on um, to do some more work you know, continuing work and recognizing that the trees were sick, actually, not all of them, but a good portion of them, you know, about 10%. And and I became tasked with trying to understand why they were sick. And I kind of intuited that it was because we were creating these forests that were so different than from where they came. Hmm. I mean, in the book, you, you talk about how when you were working as a scientist with the Canadian Forestry Service, the research and experiments that you were doing to try to, I guess, respond to the sickness you describe and and find uh, alternative approaches to addressing this issue, um, butted up against long-held forestry practices and government policies. And, you know, from what you describe, it seems like there were these very intractable approaches to clear-cutting tree planting and pesticide spraying, approaches that you said emphasize domination in the management of trees and forests. Can you speak a bit about this domination model that you were up against? I mean, I think that we can trace it back hundreds of years, even before Darwin. But Darwin was the one that really emphasized in his studies of natural selection that competition and dominance was, you know, how species were able to, you know, pass their genes onto the next generation. And Darwin himself knew that competition wasn't the only way that plants and, and animals interacted. He also knew that they cooperated, but his writings were most relevant in the field of evolution um, with this competition model. And his studies and understanding of cooperation, mostly among plants, um, is what he, he understood this. And um, it didn't at all get the same you know, profile that his theories of evolution did. And and to, not to his fault, and I think that his theories of evolution based on competition and natural selection are still very, you know, you know, obviously very strong and uh, have been borne out. Um, but he, he just didn't emphasize so much this cooperative aspect. And, you know, over time, some scientists, and I'm going to, in particular, uh, talk about Lynn Margulis, who was um, an evolutionary biologist as well. And she came up with the theory of endosymbiosis, which is 
you know, that that evolution is actually a co-evolutionary process, that um, that it is the cooperation and, and really the uh, symbionts or the coming together of different organisms that actually led to the development of higher level or eukaryotes. So, you know, multicellular organisms like people, um, that we are actually in the result of endosymbiosis, even our, you know, our ourselves we are not one right we are not just a human being we are a, a whole consortium of bacteria and viruses and fungi our guts alone are have about two pounds of bacteria in them that do all the digesting of our of our food um and so you know th this idea of cooperation didn't really even in, in Lynn Margulis's life, um, wasn't that accepted. A number of her papers were, her early papers were rejected by the scientific community. Um, and I think it, it wasn't until the Human Genome Project that, that it really gained traction that, you know, we look, we're looking at the DNA of human beings and realizing a lot of our DNA origin is from viruses and bacteria. And, and so now, you know, it's, it's much more widely accepted that coevolution and symbiosis is, is, you know, is very much part of evolution. In ecology, which is the application of some of these, apply some of these evolutionary theories, and, and it really focused in on this competition and part of natural selection, and took it to um, application in all kinds of practices. So if you look at um, agriculture and forestry, you know, that was the dominant, that still is the dominant theory. Like we, we in forestry, which is my field, you know, all of our practices can be traced to try to manage competition um, so that we create these dominant trees that we can use as commodities. We've commodified the forest. And again, using this reductionist approach that I mentioned earlier, where we're so focused on these trees that we want to grow these great big pumpkins in forestry, we call them pumpkins, um, that we can then cut down and, and mill and, and then grow another plantation that looks the same, and then another and another. It's called long-run sustained yield. The trees that we plant, um, how big they are, how far we space them apart, how we weed around them, you know, to get rid of the plants that we, we think are robbing our special trees of resources, you know, treating the forest like a zero-sum game, that there's only so much resource pie, and that if these other plants are taking up those resources water, nutrients, and so on, then there's less for the trees. Um, so that's based on, you know, the idea that only competition matters. And, um, you know, it's so, you know, weeding out these plants, spacing the trees, even, you know, thinning them when they're later in life, that's all about managing competition. Um, so we can make these dominant trees. Um, and so what I was observing in the mortality in these forests was uh, these other interactions that are going on in tree in forests, not just competition. It was like there's there's collaboration going on, there's parasitisms going on, there's proto-cooperation, there's you know, there's a whole suite of ways that trees are interacting, which of course I, I knew and understood deep in my DNA myself um, from growing up in the forest. That it's a complex place with sophisticated interactions between plants and trees and the other organisms. I think that what I was observing in the, the sickness in the forest was that we had so focused on managing this one aspect, this one way of, of trees interacting, that we were actually making the forest sick um, by taking out the plants that they needed to get through, you know, post-disturbance and succession. Those plants have roles in ecosystems. And 
I was especially, you know, working on um, plantations of Douglas fir with paper birch, and we were the province was busy spraying and hacking and cutting and getting rid of these birches and aspens and cottonwoods and alders and fire, we, you know, everything. They're just like, clean them out. And it turned out through my research that these birches were super important in um, harboring different bacteria that were actually anti had un antifungal properties. So they were antagonistic to the very pathogens that were killing the Douglas firs. And so when we got rid of the birches, though, and got, got rid of its consortium of bacteria that were antifungal, then the disease spread through these conifers that we so highly revered. So we'd sort of, you know, shot ourselves in the foot because we didn't understand how the system worked. You describe how your experiments were started to reveal this cooperation and the nuances you're describing were uh, not met with what you could describe as open arms by many of your colleagues and people within the government that you were working for, even after your research started to offer, you know, some proof um, of what you were seeing uh, uh, within this cooperation model. And, and this continued for years, even after your work garnered wide recognition. What was it like to, to kind of butt up against this continual, you know, resistance you know, I think in some ways, being a girl and um, being new to the forest industry, so thinking, you know, I started there in the late 1970s and working for the forest industry in the early 80s. And one of the first girls, suite of girls that entered into the profession. And it was difficult, right? We were butting up against all kinds of resistance to girls being in the industry. I mean, we see these problems in a lot of male-dominated professions um, where women start to enter into the field and and it's not easy. And so I think in many respects that resistance, you know, the the, the um, it's not that the men treated me badly, it's just that you're just not part of it, right? You're you're there, but you're not really part of the circle. And so always having to sort of fight your way in um, and defend yourself and prove yourself um, kind of prepared me for this what was coming down the road. Um, I guess making my skin a little thicker, but still my skin wasn't that thick. I was kind of had a few tools in my toolbox to deal with it, you know, because I I learned how to survive in this industry. And I was also very fortunate in that I had a really fantastic supervisor, Alan Vise, who um, um, was with me and defended me and stood with me and promoted me and helped, you know, help me get through this. And ultimately, I did end up leaving the Ministry of Forests because um, it was downsizing, but it was also, it was becoming untenable for me. And it, you're right that, you know, I published my my research findings, and I did these experiments, just putting a time frame on this. I started them in 1992. I published my main findings that Birch and Fur were connected and collaborating and sharing resources as well as competing, like was the standard thought process, but but they were also in this collaborative uh, community. I published that in 1997 in Nature, and and at first I think the Forest Service was like, oh, that's kind of cool, you know, somebody in the Forest Service published in Nature, but they didn't really know what that meant, and so it was sort of like this shock. And then um, and then I started getting some interviews with you know, newspapers. And, and that's also unusual for the Forest Service for one of their scientists to be actually out there speaking. And um, and then the resistance started. 
I, I, I did this one interview um, with the Globe and Mail, and I was pregnant at the time. I was about to give birth to my my oldest daughter, Hannah. And she was due in a week, and this this reporter had called me up, and I hadn't done that many interviews, and, and we were talking about having children, and I was relaxed, and she says, okay, so what about what they're doing in these forests? And I said, and of course, they were spraying and cutting and getting rid of the birches that I was finding were collaborating and protective for the these Douglas firs that were, you know, the industrial model of wealth. And, um, and I said, well, for all the good they're doing, they might as well paint rocks. You know, in my pregnant state, I went over to my boss and I said, Oh, Alan, you know, I just had this interview. And, and I said this, and he goes, Oh, my God, I can't believe you said that. And, <laughs> and so he spent the afternoon trying to call the reporter to say, please don't write that don't print that. Well, ultimately, that is what reporters like to do. And so they printed that. And, and immediately, the backlash started. Um, I was, you know, accused of being unethical, um, that, you know, that this was, I'm not supposed to criticize government policy in public, um, that it all has to be vetted through them. Um, and ultimately, they put a, a, a letter on my file saying that I had crossed this ethical line. And if you do it again, you know, you're out. Um, and and so I kind of got through that, but the pressure never really stopped after that. Um, and it wasn't just the ministry. Um, it was also academia. So there were academics out there that were also critical, didn't actually believe the results that I was reporting. And um, and so then I had this double whammy, right? I had the my bosses, I had academia, the, 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 the forest industry, I think we're just going, oh, well, this is cute. Like, we'll just ignore this. In the late 1990s, I had another child at that time. So I was a young mother dealing with all of this conflict. And I thought, I don't want anything to do with this. I'm not doing this research anymore. And I made that conscious decision and just left it behind me. And then, you know, a couple of years down the road, I actually got laid, laid off. I got let go um, and it landed in academia. And the academia in academia, they said, you should pursue this research that you were doing before, because this is cool stuff. And so I was then encouraged. And then I started up again. Um, but I almost left the whole thing, I was ready to just, I, I don't want anything to do with um, doing this kind of work again. <laughs> well, that that landmark uh, study, I guess you described what came out in 97, that was published in Nature, was dubbed the Wood Wide Web by by Nature. And, and it really created a wave of of interest around the world and a ripple effect and, you know, not just from reporters, but from an academia and the science community, but people all around the world. So I wonder if for those who just don't know the intricacies of what you discovered, if you could just briefly explain what your your study showed. Yeah. So the Wood Wide Web is a term that, yeah, it's directly out of my nature paper because I was the first one to show that that these fungi in the soil, they're called mycorrhizal fungi, connect trees together. So um, that was earth shattering, right? That that trees weren't just individuals competing for resources, but they're actually connected. And so how are they connected? So these special kind of fungi, these mycorrhizal fungi, is one of several types of fungi that exists in forests. The word mycorrhizal literally means fungus root, and it is it describes the relationship between the trees and these fungi. So they're in an obligate, mutualistic, generally mutualistic relationship where the tree provides photosynthate for the fungus because the fungus can't doesn't have leaves. Um, it lives in the soil. It's dark down there. 
Um, so it provides the food to the fungus and the fungus takes that food and it grows its mycelium. So mycelium is just the fungal threads. It's its body, basically. And it grows its body through the soil and picks up nutrients and water and then transports it back to the tree and they trade. And so that's why it's called a mutualism in that they're, they're both mutually benefiting from this relationship. And so um, I was looking at the different kinds of fungi on the roots of my test species, which were birch and fir and western red cedar. And there are different suites of fungi on different trees and plants. They have fidelities for certain fungal species. And the fungi have fidelities for different trees as well. Um, but birch and fir both shared a whole bunch of species in common. They're called ectomycorrhizal species, meaning that, they, that the fungus actually forms a sheath on the outside of the roots. And it's kind of like an outside fun fungus. Um, and I found that they shared lots and lots of species in common and therefore if you share these fungal species in other words the fungal these fungal species about you know maybe 50 species that um associate with birch and fir can actually connect them together so the individual fungus can connect them together and so i made this discovery that they had all these fungi in common and western red cedar had a whole different suite of fungi called endomycorrhizas or arbuscular mycorrhizas and couldn't form or couldn't join in the network of douglas fir and paper birch um, so the wood wide web is about these mycorrhizal fungi connecting in this in this particular paper birch and fir together and forming this network. So flying in the face of the idea that trees are individuals just out there to compete for their own resources, now suddenly they're an integrated whole. And of course, this made complete sense to me, knowing where I came from in the bush, where everything grew together. Um, and and so then I also, of course, my experiments were, what, what did that web do? And I was tracing how carbon moved back and forth between birch and fir. And the funny thing was, in the middle of the summer, the more that, that I shaded the Douglas fir artificially, like emulating the shade that paper birch cast on fir, as in a young plantation, the more the birch sent carbon to fir. And so, yeah, it was competing for light and shading it and dampening photosynthesis, but at the same time, it was sending carbon over to the fir, like there was a group thing going on, a kind of a group selection. Um, group selection is a fraught area. Not, not a lot of people believe in group selection, or you know, it's. Um, but but groups of plants do. The plants associate with each other. There are plant associations. They like to grow together. Birch and fir are like that, along with other species. You know, birch has got all these other features, like it's, it, it harbors bacteria that are antagonistic to pathogenic fungi in the soil. And so Douglas fir loves being around birch because it, it's healthy, it doesn't get infected, it's, you know, it's enriched by the nutrients from the birch leaves. There's all kinds of ways that, that it benefits from being with fir. And so in a sense, they're selecting to be together, like a group selection. You know, I made this discovery in the woods. That's why it's called the Wood Wide Web. Um, but about 10 years before I did my work, um, there was a scientist in the UK, David Reed, Sir David Reed now, um, who had done a laboratory study and he grew these little pine seedlings in little root boxes in the lab and inoculated them with a, a single mycorrhizal fungus and found that they could connect together and that carbon actually moved from one to the other. He used radioactivity to show this. And at the time, I think it was a real revelation, and his paper was published in Nature as well. 
But then, you know, over the years, the subsequent decade, there was a lot of controversy, of course, around his studies. And people were seeing, is this true in the moors and the grasslands and shrublands? And and it didn't really go anywhere. And when I started with working with it, because I read the paper, I thought, wow, I wonder if this happens in our forests and discovered that the woods are all connected. That was the first time it had been shown actually in nature, um, like in real nature, <laughs> not just in the journal nature. And and so that's why it was such a revelation, right? The wood wide web was like, wow, that's so cool that it suddenly turned upside down our understanding of, of forests as just a collection of individuals competing with each other to this, this entwined interactive uh, suite of species that actually collaborated and comp- and competed and got infected. They had this whole way of conversing with each other that was complex. Mm. Well, you know, as revelatory as it was, it did cause quite a backlash. And and, and you described that briefly earlier. Um, a lot of critiques from the scientific and academic establishment. Um, and I'm sure there's lots of reasons, you know, why that was the case. But it also seemed like it maybe at the root was that it hit this core nerve, which echoes what you described in the domination model that you were up against, you know, in Canada and the Forestry Service, challenging well-established beliefs in natural selection, ecological theory, and how competition was what shaped forests or ecosystems generally, not the cooperation that your work was now showing. I mean, that's that, a big, big challenge to that establishment that you that you revealed. Yes, yes, very much so. And and I have to say, even today, so now it's, we're in 2021. I did my initial work in 1991. So that's 30 years ago. And it still has not been accepted in forest practices. People understand it, they know about it. Um, but when it comes to being, you know, used in how we manage our resources, we're still back in the old model. You know, I think that the you know, the people who are devising forest policies and, and then ultimately practices are still stuck on the old model. We're still doing the same things that we always did. We're still spraying all the aspens or a lot of the aspens in the north because we see them as competitors, not as part of the ecosystem. We're still, you know, we're still trying to, you know, grow trees that are tall and dominant because they're going to provide commodities in the future. It still dominates our genetics programs, it dominates our cultivation programs, it it dominates how we practice forestry. So I have to say that I don't think that much has changed at all when it comes to when the rubber hits the road. Um, But I say that, and I'm, I'm also working on stuff, though, and I've been funded to create a project called the Mother Tree Project, which is based on the idea that that there is all collaboration in forests and that, you know, that it is a, a whole place. And it's been funded It's people are watching this, the forest industry is going, that's cool. Maybe we could use some of these ideas. And so I feel like we're on the cusp of change, uh, but we're just not quite there yet. And, and I have to say, you know, one of the biggest heartbreaking parts for me is that we're still clear cutting our forests at a really high rate. Um, we only have a few percent of our original old growth forests left. Um, because we clear cut them and and plant them back to these plantations that are designed to only grow for another hundred years and then cut them again. So very little plan for having old growth forests in the province anymore. Um, although we do have reserves and parks, that's true in protected areas, um, but it's not nearly enough. So 
you know, when when it comes down to it, uh, it has not been embraced. It has. We're, we're now at the cusp of basically the a collapse of the forest industry, which I think is because, you know, we've been so focused on this model of dominance and growing these, you know, plantations that are simple and clean of other plants, and it's not doing us any good, right? Mm. You talk about uh, the mother tree um, work that you've done, um, which I understand kind of picked up after you left uh, the forestry service and started working in academia where you had a little bit more freedom to mm-hmm. to 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 do the work that, that you wanted to. I, I wonder if you could explain and share what what a mother tree is and 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 how it relates to the forest. So as my work moved along on the mycorrhizal networks and I was in I was a professor now, I had graduate students, I had students that were trying to understand what what these connections were doing, you know, what nutrients and uh, information was moving through networks um, and publishing the work. But ultimately, we wanted to map what that network looked like in the forest. And so I, I had a graduate student that I shared with a colleague, Dan Durrell. The student's name is Kevin Byler, uh, who, who's doing his doctorate. And he what Kevin did is he mapped the network in the forest. So you could imagine he, he um, went into Douglas fir forest, and I really wanted to focus on on these pure Douglas fir forests. They grow naturally here. They're... Um, you know, they're multi-generational forests in that they, that the young trees grew up in the understory of the old trees uh, and it's single species. So it's easy, much easier to work with than, than multi-species forests where um, there's many, many, many fungal species, many tree species. Um, but we had the molecular tools, the molecular biology tools to look at Douglas fir and to look at the main uh, mycorrhizal species, which was Rhizopogon vinicolor, and basically use these molecular tools to identify individual fungi, individual trees, and then piece together what the network looked like. So you could imagine, you know, what Kevin would do is he'd go into the forest and he would look at all of the fungal material in that forest, patch of forest and all of the DNA in the trees. And he was able to map um, where all the trees were and all the fungal connections. And what he what what emerged out of that map was that there it, it's what's called a complex system or a, a complex network where you have hubs or big trees that are the most highly connected and so you can imagine a big old tree that is, you know, a big dominant tree in the forest. Um, they have large root systems, like uh, the root systems can go out as, you know, as wide as they are tall. And, and there are many of them because there's a huge photosynthetic capacity in that crown to feed into that root system. And so they were connected with almost everything else. And when those old trees would shed their seeds in the fall, uh, those seed seeds would fall to the forest floor in the spring, germinate, and then within a month or two, a couple of months, they would tap into the network of the old trees. And so these young trees were actually, and we, we measured this, receiving carbon and nutrients and water from the old trees until they could make enough leaves themselves that they could survive on their own. And so these old trees were really nurturing the the young seedlings coming up around them and so that's where we started to call those mother trees because of that nurturing thing that and and that they were the most highly connected and then we went on and asked even more questions and you could probably think of that question yourself it doesn't take a genius to think well could these old mother trees actually recognize which ones are their own seedlings versus like a neighbor's 
And it turns out that they can. So we did a bunch of elegant experiments um, showing this and how mother trees uh, is called kin recognition. They can recognize which are their kin and they send resources, more resources to those kin seedlings to ensure that their their survival is good and that they could pass on their, their genes, I guess, to the next generation. And so kin selection and kin recognition became much big part of the story as well. So that that's why we call them mother trees. And I have to give a caveat in that, you know, these Douglas fir trees are actually mothers and fathers. It's not, they're not just like the cones and the the pollen cones and the seed cones are in the same trees. Um, But we, we, I started using the term because it's, it's actually culturally an important term. People understand everybody has a mother, everybody has a father too, but we're close to our mothers in in a special way. Um, You know, they, you know, when we, when a mother has a child, you know, you know your child, you feed your child, you, you know, you nurture your child. And, um, and so this is what we were seeing. And, and I felt like this, this term has good, got good gravitas that everybody would understand this. And when you look, you know, in history and in, in our indigenous cultures, they also referred to mother trees and gr- grandmother trees and grandfather trees. And so the mother tree is just the biggest, oldest trees in the forest. Mm. I mean, it, throughout your work, you've kind of departed from conventional uh, naming in many ways. I mean, mother, children, her, you use very, you know, unscientific terms. Um, and it seems like quite deliberately, as you just described, to create connection relationship. But it's it's not the the, the normal scientific practice. No, it's not. And, and you know, I know that, that I can hear the, all the criticisms, you know, going on. And because in the scientific world, it's like there's certain things that could kill your career and being an, an anthropomorphizing is one of those things. Um, but, you know, I, I'm at the point where it's okay. You know, that that's okay. There, there's a bigger purpose here. One of them is to communicate with people. But the other one is, um, you know, we've separated ourselves from nature so much that it's to our own demise, right? Like we uh, feel that, you know, we're separate and superior to nature and we can use it, that we're dominion over nature. It's throughout our religion, our education systems, our economic systems, it is pervasive. Um, And the result is that we have loss of old growth forests. We have, you know, our fisheries are collapsing. We have global change. We've got like huge, we're in a mass extinction I think a lot of this comes from that we feel like we're disconnected, we're not part of nature, that we can we can command and control it, um, but it, we can't. And, you know, if you look at Aboriginal cultures, and I've started to study our own native cultures in North America more and more because... Um, because they understood this and they lived this. They, you know, they... Um, in in where I'm from, the the uh, we call our Aboriginal people First Nations have been in, lived in this area for thousands and thousands of years on the west coast, seventeen thousand years, um, way 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 for much much longer than than colonists have been here, only about a hundred and fifty years. And look at the changes we've made, you know, not not positive in all ways. Um, and our Aboriginal people. Um, view themselves as one with nature that we're just it's not even that they don't even have a word for the environment the environment because they are they are one and they they actually uh 
viewed trees and plants and animals, the natural world, as people unequal to themselves. So there's the tree people, the plant people. And they had mother trees and grandfather trees and, you know, the strawberry, the strawberry sister and the cedar sister. And, um, and so they treated them, their environment with respect, with reverence. They, they uh, worked with the environment to increase their own livability and wealth. Uh, you know, cultivating the salmon so that they the populations were strong, the clam beds so that the clams were abundant, um, you know, using fire to make sure that, that there were lots of berries and, and game and so on. That's how they thrived and they did thrive. They were wealthy, wealthy societies. Um, and so I feel like, you know, we're at a crisis, right? We're at a tipping point now because we have removed ourselves from nature and we have we're seeing the decline of so much and we have to do something. And I think the crux of it is that we have to re-envelop ourselves in our natural world, that we are just part of this world. We're all one together in this biosphere. And we need to work with our sisters and our brothers, the trees and the plants and the wolves and the bears and the fish. And, and until we do, you know, one way to do it is just start viewing it in a different in a different way. That that yes, sister sister birch is important, and brother fir is important is just as important as your family. And and so yeah, I mean, anthropomorphism, it's a taboo word, and it's like the death knell of your career. But it's also absolutely essential that we get past this because. It's an invented word. It was invented by, you know, Western science. It's a way of saying, yeah, we're superior, we're objective, we're different. We can overlook, you know, we can oversee this stuff in an, an objective way. We, we can't put ourselves in this because we're, we're separate. We're different. Well, you know what? That is the abs- absolute crux of our problem. And so I unashamedly use these terms and, you know, people can criticize it. But to me, it is the answer to getting back to nature, getting back to our roots, working with nature to create a wealthier, healthier world. Mm. One of the many things I appreciated in your book was that you repeatedly say um, that your studies and research um, were proving or revealing scientifically what had long been held knowledge by the indigenous peoples of the areas that you were spending time in and studying. And, you know, this kind of recognition again, is not common in Western science. Um, Could you speak to the importance of this acknowledgement and recognition in your field? You know, scientists stand on the shoulders of others. You know, the way science works is that we advance the ideas um, and we do one little piece at a time. Um, So so that's part of my recognition, but most importantly is that, you know, our Aboriginal people were highly scientific um, you know, their science is thousands of years of observations of the cycles of nature, the variability in nature, and working with that variability, creating um, healthy salmon populations. So, for example, I have a I have a uh, started out as a postdoc, now a research associate, Dr. Teresa Ryan, who is a salmon fishery scientist, and so along the coastline, and Teresa is studying along the coastline how the salmon. And the coastal nations are one together. The trees, the salmon, they all are interdependent. And the way that the 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 Hyaltsuk, the the Haida, the Simsian, the Tlingit worked with the salmon is they had what are called tidal stone traps. And the tidal stone traps are these 
huge walls that would, they would build below the tide line on the major rivers where the salmon would migrate to, to spawn. And when the tide came in, the salmon would be passively trapped behind these stone walls. Um, and they would throw them back on the high tide. They wouldn't collect those salmon, but on the low tide, they would go in and pa passively fish or ca catch the fish. And that was their harvest. But they always threw back the big mother fish. And in so doing, their genetic stock created more large salmon. And so the population of salmon actually grew and grew. And in that way, they could look after their people. The salmon and the people were one together. And the salmon, as they migrated upstream, the bears and the wolves would prey on the salmon or feed on them and carry them into the forest. And basically the mycorrhizal networks picked up those salmon nutrients as they as the remains decayed and they ended up in the trees. So the salmon nitrogen is in the trees. And these trees grew bigger, it's like a fertilizer, and then they would shade the streams and create a more hospitable stream with lower stream temperatures for the salmon to migrate into. Uh, and so in that way, all was connected together. You know, and much of the history is is oral history, but some is written. Of course, those stories are have disappeared, but they also have been saved. And and so I'm listening to these stories, and 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 also reading and and discovering that you know these connections were already known, right? And they already knew that these fungal networks were in the soil. They 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 talked about the funga the fungus in the soil and how it fed the trees and how the salmon fed the trees. And they would actually take the remains and the bones of the salmon and put them beneath the trees or into the streams to fertilize. Um, and so I thought, I thought, this has always been known. We can't, you know, colonists came in and so arrogantly dismantled a lot of those stone traps. It was against the law for them to use those stone traps. They couldn't fish using their traditional methods. And now the modern fishery basically takes everything. And the knowledge, the Aboriginal knowledge systems were ignored, even ridiculed. People didn't believe it. We, we had this arrogance thinking that we could come in in 150 years versus thousands of years of observation and science and then apply this sort of very ignorant way of managing resources. And so I thought, okay, you know, it's kind of a strange that here I come along I use isotopes and molecular techniques and reductionist science, and I figure out these networks exist in forests. I publish it in Nature. The world is like, wow, this is cool, even though there was a lot of people saying it's not cool. But um, suddenly it's believed, right? Because it's, it's, it's Western science published in Western journals, and it's not Aboriginal. And I thought, well, you know, I, I mean, I understood my role in this. I was like a scientist who came along at and was able to build on the science of David Reed, but I'm standing on the shoulders of thousands of years of knowledge. I think it's so important that we all recognize this, that um, that there is so much knowledge there that we've ignored and that we need to manage our resources properly, and we need to listen to our Aboriginal roots, our Indigenous parts of us, because we all are basically at some point Indigenous. Let's listen to ourselves and listen to what's known you know, I'm glad people are tuned in and that it's published and it's understood. But I also want to recognize and acknowledge that I'm standing on the shoulders of thousands of years of knowledge. Mm. I mean, I guess this leads to what 
you could call an underlying problem of the Western scientific lens, which not only often discounts traditional ecological knowledge and those thousands of years of, of, of wisdom built through observing natural systems. And this model reduces the whole to, the, to its parts and then often limits the understanding or awareness of the larger interconnected and interdependent whole you're describing. And, and you wrote about this and that in university, you have been taught to take apart the ecosystem, to reduce it to parts and study these parts objectively. And that when you followed these steps of taking the system apart to look at these pieces, you were able to publish, publish your results, no problem. But that you soon learned that it was almost impossible for a study of the diversity and connectivity of the whole ecosystem to get into print. Now, I imagine this is starting to change and your work has helped shift that. But this seems like a huge systemic problem. It is. <laughs> you know, when I was earlier in my career, I published this work in Nature, which is very reductionist in a bunch of different journals. And then I was, of course, I was working at the same time, trying to work with whole ecosystems and, and you know, working with my birch fir system and, and trying to publish that work. And I couldn't get it published because it was just, there was too many parts in it. Like, you, can't you just talk about one little part of it? And, and, and ultimately, like, I felt like the reviewers couldn't handle it. Like, they couldn't handle the bigger picture stuff. It was way easier to pick apart this small experiment on one test, test subject and, you know, see that it, you know, got all the boxes of replication and randomization and, you know, fancy analysis. And then, oh, you can publish that. But you can't publish this on this complex ecosystem that's like that's and in fact some one person i think i said this in the book is that i got one of the reviews back and the and the reviewer said well i you can't publish this anybody could just walk through the forest and see the you know see this stuff like no reject and and so i was so discouraged at that point and i thought how do you ever publish something on a whole system and you know now it's a little easier. Um, you still have to have all those basic parts, you know, randomization, replication, like analysis of variance, sort of this, you know, this very simple way that we do statistics. Um, but now there are whole fields of statistics and a whole understanding that about systems and how systems work. It's called complex adaptive system science. And that's helped a lot. And it's come out of a lot of that has come out of a group in, in Europe called the, the Resilience Alliance, and they've kind of opened the door to, to have these more holistic, ecological, economic, social, integrated studies. Um, and it is because there are whole journals now dedicated to system science. And, and th thank goodness, but I, I still say that, you know, even then, you know, it's still not easy to be publishing these large, far-reaching, integrated, holistic papers. Um, and I have to say, too, you know, like in academia, you know, you get rewarded for the number of papers that you publish. They still count the number of papers. You get rewarded for that. You get more money. You get more grants. You get more recognition, especially if you're the lead author. And so then you see, you know, in areas like microbiology or or even, even like uh, satellite imagery and remote sensing, if you can dissect your paper in these little bits and bites um, and pu publish these small ideas and have many, many, many papers, you're much further ahead than writing that one big seminal paper that integrates everything together that's going to be really hard to publish. And so, so academics 
do. They they put them in these little bite-sized pieces. I find myself doing it too. Like it's how you can survive in that environment. And so it is sort of like a self-fulfilling system of always having these little bits of papers. It's the antithesis of 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 holistic work. And I think that was one of the reasons I wrote this book is that it kind of I'm allowed to bring it all together. Yeah, it's a it's an ongoing issue. It's changing, it's getting better. Um, but it, it definitely has shaped how people view publishing and publish and how they design their research and how they get funding and and how science therefore advances. Mm. I mean, you definitely feel like as a reader in, in reading your book that you you are being very free about expressing yourself. And, and I found that, again, very touching because often science feels like it creates a, a separation, even the language and the way that scientific papers are. If you're not a scientist like myself and you're reading, when I read your paper, I'm like, I can understand this, but I also felt like I don't know who Suzanne is, for instance, and I don't really know about your personal relationship to the place that you're studying or what you were feeling. Um, and, uh, you know, but in this book, it's different. And, and you wrote... I have come full circle to stumble into some of the indigenous ideals. Uh, diversity matters and everything in the universe is connected between the forests and the prairies, the land and the water, the sky and the soil, the spirits and the living, the people and all other creatures. This is a very spiritual statement. I mean, and, and, and actually hearing you talk for this you know, last hour we've been speaking – a lot of what you're saying feels spiritual. I mean, it doesn't necessarily feel what you'd expect to be, you know, coming from a scientist. It, it has a different quality to it. Yeah, I'm so glad that you got that, um, you know, that you you get that spirituality from the book because I've stood on the edge of death and had to really examine this because I got really sick, right? And, you know, and I'd always been very afraid of dying and... Uh, Death is sort of a taboo in our in our culture, in our current culture. Nobody wants to die, but we also try to be young and alive. And at least the way I grew up, it was like we were trying to pretend it didn't exist. And and I and I, that's a problem, right? Because you know one of the one of the results of this is that we we sort of shove our elders aside. I think one of the expressions is we put them in homes, <laughs> and, um, and I think that there is such a strong place for elders and the dead, right? And the and the multiple generations coming after that, that what lives, my, my granny Liv, Winnie, who I talk about in the book, lives in me. And her mom, my great-grandmother Helen, lives in me as well. And I feel all that. And, and you know, the Aboriginal people talk about seven generations before and after and that we... And we have responsibility to our previous and forward generations. And I truly deeply believe this now. I really saw that and felt it. I learned it when I got so sick, when I was standing on the edge of death. Um, and and so my own spirituality grew immensely. And, and so this, you know, when I talk about connection and the wood wide web, it's a very physical space, spatial thing. Um, but it also is through the generation. So I talked about how the little seedlings tap into the, the networks of the old trees and they're sustained and nurtured by the, the carbon and the nutrients coming from those old trees. That is caring for the next generations. And those little seedlings also give back to the old trees, right? There is a movement back and forth. And, and so, and that's a rich, rich thing. That's what makes us whole and, and gives us so much you know, the history that we can build on and move forward. And um, and I, I wanted people to understand that this connection is through, and we have 
connection to our future generations, we also have a responsibility to them that we want our next generations to be healthy and thriving and loving their lives, having happy lives, not suffering and facing a bleak future, which I think, you know, I have children and I, they worry, right? They're, it's a worry. And I imbue in them my own spirituality. I want them to know, to have me with them as they go through and make it a better world themselves. It was such an important personal revelation for me. Um, but I think it's also you know, for all of us to remember that we're one of many generations, that we have an important role in our own space and time, um, and that, you know, that we carry things forward and we send them on into the future. Um, you wrote very openly about your experience with cancer in the book, um, and it seemed to happen in parallel to all you were deepening your studies about the mother trees. How did your understanding of the mother trees shift during this time as you went through this period of, of transformation? You know, I was listening to myself and listening to where I was at and my research was moving along and, you know, it was, it was so amazing how it all worked together. Um, but as I was facing, you know, an uncertain future and my children were still like, they were 12 and 14 at the time. Um, and I thought, you know, I could die. I was, I was, you know, I had a, a mortal disease and I wanted to make sure that I was giving them all that I could. And, and then, you know, to, to make sure they were going to be safe, even if I couldn't be there, that I would still be with them, even if I wasn't physically there. And, um, and at the same time, I was doing this research on, you know, trees that were dying and, and our province had you know, part of my, my world had undergone this massive mortality event in our forests where the mountain pine beetle came through and killed a, an area of forest the size of Sweden. Um, and and so there was death all around us, right? And, and I was studying what that meant. Like, were these dying trees just like dissipating into nowhere or were they actually passing on their energy and wisdom to the next generations? And I was doing multiple experiments with my colleagues and students around this. At the same time, I was diagnosed with cancer. And, and I, it dawned on me that, you know, I needed to learn from my experiments, but I also had to take my experience and personal experience and really, and really folded into what I was studying. And so, you know, just started really directing my students and my studies to understanding how energy and, and, and information and our learning is passed on and in trees as well and finding out, you know, that they do this, you know, that they, when a tree is dying, it passes on like most of its carbon through its networks to the neighboring trees, even different species. And that, that this was so important to the vitality of the new forests. And even, you know, um, even the trees that were receiving, they were also receiving messages that increased their defense against, you know, the beetle and other disturbance agents in the forest and increasing the health of those next generations. And, and I saw and, you know, measured and analyzed and saw how the forest gives forward, passes forward. And so I, I just took that to my children, you know, and just said, this is what I need to do too. I'm like the mother tree. And even if I'm going to die, I need to give her, give it a my all. And just like these trees are given her their all. And yeah, so it all happened together and it was, it was so cool. I had to write about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, talking about the future, I mean, 
in your book, you, you, you don't shy away from the harsh realities of climate change and the looming threats that we face. But your story and your work is also inherently hopeful. You know, the connections you discovered, the, the way that the living world functions, um, there's, there's a hope in being made aware of this again, you know. And you also say that you don't think it'll be technology or really policy that will save us, but rather transformational thinking and becoming aware of what you've seen, um, that we need to heed the answers we are being shown by the living world and acknowledge that, as you said before, that we're one. Could you speak a bit more about this? Yeah, um, you know, now as I understand how ecosystems work and systems work, and um, one of the amazing things about systems is that they're designed to heal themselves. Um, So, you know, all these connections are to create wealth and health in the whole. So systems have these properties Um, There's emergent properties in that, you know, you take all these parts and out of the parts interacting in their relationships arises things like health and beauty and, um, you know, symphonies in human societies and so on. Um, And so there, you know, we can have these incredible positive emergence of these things Um, and tipping points as well. And a tipping point is where, you know, a system will kind of move along. It's under different pressures and stresses and it can start to unravel if it's there are lots of negative things going on. And we're seeing that with global change. You know, some things are unraveling. Um, we lose so many parts in the airplane, like taking rivets out of an airplane. And if you take out too many rivets, suddenly the plane loses its wings and it falls apart and it crashes to the ground. Um, and so that's a very, you know, a negative tipping point. And when people think of tipping points, they think of that negative, scary thing. But tipping points also work the other way um, in systems in that, you know, they're, as I said, like systems are actually wired to be whole. Um, They're so intelligently designed to uh, transmit across systems information and energy to keep them whole and strong. And, And so there's positive tipping points, too. You can do simple little things like not driving so much and taking the bus. All that is, is important. Policies, I, you know, policies are important too. Global policies that say, we're going to decarbonize our future. You know, we're going to get off fossil fuels and, and find alternative energy sources. Those are all little things that are being put in place. Joe Biden saying, we're going to have electric cars in the US within, you know, 15 years. Those are all little policies being put in place that are going to lead to tipping points not the negative ones, but the positive ones where suddenly the system starts to become more cohesive again, more connected, more healthy and whole. And I think, you know, it's really important for people to understand this, that what you do is not hopeless at all. Even small policy, and I know that I maybe I said that policies weren't as important. They are important, but behind policies are our behaviors and the way we think. And putting these things in place, suddenly the system will start, it'll, it'll start to shift and suddenly there'll be a, it'll hit a tipping point and it will improve. We'll start drawing down CO2. We'll start seeing species coming back. Um, we'll start seeing our waterways clean up. We'll start seeing the whales and the salmon coming back. But we've got to work, right? We've got to put the proper things in place. And it's so heartening when you see some of those things happening. I know that, that that's how, that's how, how we improve. We've got to small, small things, big things, but consistently moving it along till we get to those hopeful places, those tipping points. Mm. 
what you're working on now seems like it's one of those um, ingredients which can help us get to that place, um, which is the Mother Tree Project. Could you could you talk about what that is and what it, what it aims to do? You know, I had done all this basic research on connection and communication in trees and being frustrated that we weren't seeing changes in forest practices. And, and I thought, well, you know, I, I need to do something where we can demonstrate that, um, that the, how these systems work and, and also test, you know, um, if we're going to harvest trees, which we'll continue to do, we, you know, people have always harvested trees in some way and used them. And, but I thought there's got to be a better way than clear cutting, you know, our old growth forests. It's like, you know, clear cutting the salmon populations. Like it just doesn't work. We need to leave some elders behind. We need mother trees to provide the genes for, you know, they've been through multiple climate episodes. Their genes carry that information. We need to save it instead of like cutting them down and not having that diversity for the future to help us move into the future. And and so I, the mother tree project is a project that, um, the main goal is how do we manage our forests and design our policies so that we have resilient, healthy forests as climate changes. And so I designed this experiment where I use what's called a space for time experiment, where I have 24 forests across a climate gradient of Douglas fir and then uh, the distribution of Douglas species, Douglas fir, and then harvesting those forests in different ways and comparing it to our standard practice of clear cutting. So leaving mother trees in different configuration and amounts and seeing what the response of the ecosystem was in terms of how it regenerates, like how much, you know, the species that come back, the natural seeding in, what happens to the carbon in those systems? You know, does it all, does it respond like a clear cut where we lose so much carbon right off the bat or do we protect it by leaving some of these old trees? Uh, What happens to biodiversity? And so that's what that project is doing. And it's a huge project. It's the biggest one I've ever done. Um, I started it when I was 55. And I'm thinking, why am I starting this at 55? <laughs> but um, because it's a 100-year-old project. It's a 100-year project. But then I, you know, actually, I have so many students from 15-year-olds to, you know, 50-year-olds coming in and working in it. And they're the next generation to carry this experiment forward. And we're finding out some incredible stuff, right? Like we're finding that when you clear cut, you create the most risky environment. And keeping in mind, clear cutting is what we do. That's the standard practice. But we lose like a lot of carbon right off the bat and we lose biodiversity and we have less regeneration. You know, the whole system ratchets down. Whereas if we leave clusters of old trees, they nurture the next generation. They keep the carbon in the soil. You know, they keep the biodiversity they provide the seed. So this is really cool. It shows a different way to manage forests. But the thing is that if you, we call it partial cutting when you leave old trees, um, to, to practice partial cutting, we have to change our mindset in other ways too, right? So we have, our government has what's called a cut level, an allowable annual cut that is actually legislated and, and assigned and if we said, okay, you know, partial cutting and leaving mother trees is the best way to go, that doesn't mean that we just keep the cut the same level and just do more partial cutting over the landscape. That would be a disaster too, because we would end up affecting a much bigger landscape. What we have to do is say, we don't need to cut so much. We don't need to be managing our system so that they're on the brink of collapse all the time, which is basically what that allowable cut is. It's like, how much can we take before we destroy the whole system. Let's move back and say, let's take a lot less 
and leave a lot more behind and we can use partial cutting but take a lot less, um, then we're going to be on the road to recovery. But anyway, that is what the Mother Tree Project is about. I would like to see these concepts, you know, um, applied around the world because these idea of elder trees and their importance in forests, it's not just important for our temperate forests, it's important for our boreal forests and our tropical forests too. And ancient Aboriginal cultures all have this reverence of old trees. They knew the importance of them. And I think I would like to see people trying to use these concepts in the management of their own forests elsewhere. And and that doesn't just mean carte blanche applying it, but trying different things. But the principle being that elders are important. Mm. Suzanne, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today. It's been a real pleasure to get to learn more about your work and, and, and you and your life. Well, thank you. And thank you for such insightful questions. Those are really great questions. Thank you, Suzanne. It's, it's been my honor. Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Kaliapea Foundation. Our original essays, in-depth interviews, films, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Our theme music is composed by H. Scott Salinas. This podcast is edited by Ben Zolitiano. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. To subscribe to our newsletter, order our new print edition, and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org.